0: Thanks, Rob, and worship team. I I love that song because it puts to music the book of Colossians is basically what it does. I mean, if you go through the New Testament book of Colossians and look especially at chapters 1 or chapter 3, that song just kind of comes out, again, in musical form, what the Apostle Paul is is telling us there. So thanks to our worship team for for leading us in rich worship again this morning. Uh, My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Brookside if my voice sounds a little deeper than normal this morning, that's because, A, either I'm trying to keep up with Larry Parsons, because he has a cool, deep radio voice, B, I'm trying to finally get on the, the choir team, uh, and maybe if I'm a bass, Rob will let me in, or, or C, because I had a cold earlier this week, so I'm getting over that, but so, so if you hear some of that in my voice, uh, put up with it, because there's nothing else you can do, um, This morning, we're continuing our series called The Difference. And what we're doing in this series is we're examining different religions, different worldviews, and what they believe. So far, we've looked at Islam, uh, we've looked at pantheism or Eastern religions, and we've looked at Judaism last week. This, uh, This morning, we're looking at what's called the New Atheism, and the next week, we wrap things up with Mormonism. And if this is your first time here, or for all of the rest of us who need constant reminders... What we're trying to do through this series is this. Our prayer is that through this series, you'll be a little bit more equipped to interact with others around you who believe very different things. People across the street, across the cubicle, uh, people in your family perhaps even. Uh, but, but our hope is that you'll, you'll do so in a way that's consistent with how the Bible asks us to interact with people around us who believe very different things. To use the words of 1 Peter three fifteen, we're to do this with gentleness and respect, or to quote again from the Apostle Paul in Colossians again in Colossians chapter four verses five and six, we're to do this with graciousness and wisdom. But in this series, we're also drawing attention to key differences between Christianity and other religions, other worldviews that simply cannot be ignored. This means that another goal of our series is for us to, to maybe learn or be reminded of what is true. About distinctive uh, or, or about biblical what, what is true and distinctive about biblical gospel centered Christianity, so if you 're not a believer, this is a chance for you to consider Christianity in its own words, so to speak. whatever you 've heard, uh, this series is a chance for you to say, "Okay, is the Christianity that maybe I thought I rejected? Is that truly the Christianity that we read about and we discover in the Bible so if you 're not a believer, if you 're here t- kind of checking stuff out or if somebody invited you this morning." Uh, give us the grace, we would ask, to, to consider Christianity in its own words, according to the Bible. But if you are already a Christian, the truths of our faith that we're looking at in this series is a, is a chance for all of us to be driven to fresh worship and to renewed obedience about this faith that we, that we claim allegiance to and, and, and towards the Lord that we claim allegiance to. So with this attitude uh, kind of setting the tone for, for the last few weeks of the series today and next week, with that attitude setting the tone, let me pray for us first, and then we'll jump into what's up for this morning on the new atheism. Heavenly Father, we turn to you again in prayer because we believe that you're real and we believe that you hear us and and even respond to us as we look to you and depend on you through prayer. So, Father, we come to you humbly and in dependence this morning, just simply echoing the words of Scripture that we've already looked at. Father, build into our lives individually and build into our life as a church these attitudes of gentleness and respect and wisdom and graciousness as we, as we explain to others who don't believe the same we do, as we explain to them the hope that we have because of what you've done for us, Jesus. So, so Jesus, if anything of value is going to happen here this morning, it's going to be uh, because you are here and you're working in our lives and in our hearts. So we look to you and ask you for those things this morning. Jesus, we love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, probably the most frequent response I've gotten when others have heard that this morning I'm going to be speaking on what's called the new atheism, uh, they always kind of respond first with a question. They say, what's new about the new atheism? And in one sense, the answer is not much. But that doesn't sell as many books. You can't kind of call something the old atheism and get very far. You see, from what I've seen and read from guys like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, these are kind of two of the big guys at the top who are, who are explaining what atheism is in the 21st century, promoting new atheism. Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, some of these guys that maybe you've, you've heard of or seen, seen on C-SPAN or seen on uh, Comedy Central, the kind of the daily show, stuff like that. Uh, what they do is they don't really create new arguments for atheism, but they reformulate and reuse and recycle the same arguments that atheists have always looked to and believed. There is no God in the universe, or anywhere else for that matter, and everything we we see around us, everything we see around us, if we trace it back far enough, everything can be explained entirely and only in terms of natural causes. Uh, But there is nevertheless some stuff that is new and distinctive about this new atheism. First of all, the new atheism is new in that it promotes atheist ideas very effectively, at the popular level. Once upon a time, atheist ideas were promoted in the halls of the university classroom with a professor that wore a bow tie, had some out-of-date clothes, and had some really funny-looking glasses. Uh, but, but no longer is that the only place that atheism is kind, of, is kind of cornered to. You see, the new atheists have found a niche in popular literature. Their, their books are available on the top shelves in some of the most prominent places of the bookstores that you go to. You walk around and look at bookshelves while you're sipping coffee at Barnes & Noble or Borders or a whole lot of other places probably as well. And you see books by Richard Dawkins. One of his latest books, I think, is called The God Delusion is the name of it. Or Christopher Hitchens, who has by far the most provocative title. Um, His book promoting this new atheism is called God is Not Great. And then I I love the subtitle, How Religion Poisons Everything. Um, Even in adolescent, children, and young adult literature, uh, there is an atheist writer by the name of Philip Pullman, uh, who has been described as a sort of anti-C.S. Lewis in his latest trilogy, His Dark Materials, that trilogy, where he mocks religious belief and diminishes God in apparent ways. Even in our own congregation, uh, this last week, or maybe a couple of weeks ago, someone sent me an email with some correspondence they've been having with a co-worker. And this email from a co-worker just had, it was probably, my guess is two or three Pages worth of email, kind of unpacking argument after argument after argument in this particular co-worker's opinion for how the evidence for God and the reality of God just doesn't compete. So whether you run into it at the bookstore, whether you run into it on the Daily Show with John Stewart and some of the people he brings in to interview, whether you run into it at work, even in high school, I've run into more high schoolers who have friends that say they're atheists than I ever remember. I used to work with high schoolers, uh, once upon a time, but uh, but now even in high school, there's, this is trickling out and becoming very popular. So you see, this new atheism is something that doesn't exist a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This new atheism uh, is something that, that many of us have encountered ourselves. This is something that many of us have encountered through family members that we may know. This is maybe even something that many of us or some of us here are wrestling with considering how, how does Christianity respond to this argument or that argument? So this is something that, that, that again, can't and even shouldn't be ignored. But a second way this new atheism is new is in its hostility towards religion. This new atheism is new in its hostility toward religion. Before this latest wave of new atheism, atheist writings would have been kind of at a general level trying to prove that Christianity or religion more broadly is simply false but the new atheists go a step further in an aggressive way uh there's a, gonna be a few times this morning where we're gonna kind of direct you to some quotes by some really smart guys uh up on the screens behind me so so uh as we kind of point to this hostility towards religion this characteristic of the new atheism look at these quotes up on the screens behind me if you would and i'll go, go ahead and just read them but so in a recent book Authors Sean McDowell and Jonathan Morrow write of The New Atheists. If you were to use their writings to create a new atheist mission statement, it would read, Christianity isn't just false, but it's dangerous and must be eliminated. And then there's a brilliant guy. He's actually an atheist turned Christian. Uh, He's got a doctorate in molecular biology and also a doctorate in theology. So he's kind of this great guy to turn to for this, Alistair McGrath, Christian scholar- scholar alice mcgrath says this to describe the tenor of the new atheism again describing new atheism he says eliminate religion and the world will be a better place religion has led only to violence intellectual dishonesty oppression and social division so the question i think that we need to ask as people who follow jesus christ who who call ourselves christians is how do we respond to this new atheism in any of the ways it may take shape Uh, as we encounter it what i want to do this morning then is use the rest of our time together to look at at three key questions that lie towards the center of any dialogue or interaction that we might have with people who who consider themselves atheists at the level of idea so if we're talking with atheists at, at these level of ideas about okay what do you believe what do i believe let's talk about it here are three key questions that need to lie at the center or towards the center of that dialogue the first question is the obvious one, uh, obvious one, does God exist? Does God exist? The new atheist response to this, of course, is that no, God doesn't exist. And if you read only their stuff, if you read only their writings, you'd think that this was an open and shut case that would be obvious to anyone with, with half of a brain. But in truth, there are plenty of really smart scientists, and there are plenty of really smart philosophers who believe that God does exist, and who believe that God is actively involved in our lives, even now in the 21st century. And so here are just three of the reasons they point to to help us get to God from the natural world, from, from their areas of, of expertise. And what these do is these, um, these reasons that these really smart scientists and philosophers point to, what these do is they show that, that, um, that believing in God is absolutely plausible, in my opinion, like, likely, and also, in my opinion, compelling. So these are three plausible, likely, and compelling proofs for the existence of God. Whereas we talk with atheists, it's not an open and shut case, but there's plenty of indicators that show there is a God who does exist. The first reason that we can, that we can look at is, is getting to God from our origins. Getting to God from our origins. Or another way to say this is that our, our origins lead us to God. You see, even most atheist scientists will concede that our universe had a beginning. But what they haven't done is they haven't satisfactorily answered the question, how did something come from nothing? How did something that was inanimate one day become something that was life? These aren't small issues. If you ask somebody who's an atheist those questions, you'll see that they kind of stutter a little bit to, to answer that because they don't know either. You see, the fact that there's stuff in the universe, the fact that there's life in the universe, when at some point in the distant past, there wasn't any of that, that's, a, that's an issue that has to be accounted for. And what I would suggest to them is that where, where you see creation, the simplest, most straightforward answer is that there's a creator who, who created that creation. Uh, and the Bible shows us from the, from the first verse of Genesis, but throughout the Old and New Testaments, that God is that creator. So, so this, this issue of origins shows that there is a creator who the Bible reveals as God. So the first foot in the door, so to speak, of making the, the existence of God plausible, likely, and compelling. A second reason uh, is getting to God from design. Or the evidence of design leads us again to God. The idea here is that all sorts of evidence shows that our world is finely tuned for life. Our world is designed for life. Um, Living things contain amazing complexity and information, even at the smallest cellular levels. And so the design of our world and the irreducible complexity of the smallest parts of ourselves, again, they're another big reason that points strongly to the presence of a designer. Who the Bible reveals as God. Another plausible, likely, and compelling proof for the existence of God. And then, third reason that I'll give before we move on is, is getting to God from morality. Getting to God from morality, or, or morality leads us to God. Here, the question that atheists struggle to answer is how do we know what's good without a moral God? How do we know what is good? without a moral God. Even Richard Dawkins, maybe the most prominent of the new atheists, admits this difficulty. He writes that it's pretty hard to defend absolute morals on grounds other than religious ones. So if you want absolute morals, Richard Dawkins says, boy, it's hard to get there without religion. Uh, and so, so without God, there's no way for us to know what's right versus what's wrong, what's good versus what's evil. Beyond what our respective consciences tell us, or what our respective communities tell us but but the the sticking point with that is that is that if if we 're just left to what our communities tell us is right or wrong, what our nations or our families or what our consciences tell us are right or wrong, there are times throughout history you can say that community had it way wrong <laughs> you know uh, look i mean the the maybe easy example to pick on is Nazi Germany uh, If this is all we 're left to. It makes us hard to be be able to point the finger at Nazi Germany and say what they did in the Holocaust was wrong because the Nazis were acting consistently with their ethic as a community. They were acting consistently with their morality as a community. So if we're left to say that that ethics and morality are determined by our conscience or our community, what happens when groups like the Nazis pop up and, and they say, here's how we're acting within the morality and the ethic of our community, there has to be uh, a standard higher than that, a standard that transcends that, that absolutizes morality. You see, almost everyone would agree the Nazi Germany, what, what they did in the Holocaust was wrong, and not just wrong at the level of, boy, that was a bad idea, but wrong in the sense of, that was morally wrong. What they did was evil. This basic human reaction to what the Nazis did, this basic human consensus on morality, it's, again, another big reason where we can say there has to be a moral lawgiver. There has to be a, a, a transcendent God who can, who can tell us what's right or wrong. Again, just one last argument to get the foot in the door for why the existence of God is plausible, likely, and, again, in my opinion, compelling. But once we get to the point where we, where we admit that God could exist, this opens us up to the next question that, that really deserves or demands our attention. And that second question is, okay, so if we get to the point where we say God does exist, the second question is, what kind of God exists? What kind of God exists? Well, the new atheists, they certainly don't believe that God exists, and they nevertheless spend plenty of time poking holes in how they think God is often understood by religions or Christianity and how God is presented. Again, here another quote will pop up from Richard Dawkins, where we just let him speak in his own words on how he understands what kind of God exists. Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, writes, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal. I had to practice that one for a while. A sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So even if you only understand two-thirds of those words, you know that Richard Dawkins isn't being complimentary. And I can guess at some of the particular Old Testament passages that Dawkins has in mind when he when, when he uh, describes God in the way that he did there in that quote. But I think when you read the Old Testament on your own, I think that you come away think, uh, with a very different picture of God. I think you, you come away from the Old Testament realizing that Dawkins has certain preconceived ideas of what god is like and so he has put those ideas as a sort of lens through which he comes to the old testament and he comes to it more with an agenda than than to understand the old testament on its own terms and that's characteristic of the new new atheism generally Uh, they don't try to understand christianity on its own terms but they, they they like to poke holes in how they understand it but very few christians would say that's the god we worship nobody says that you know instead Listen to this. Instead, as, as I've read the Old Testament, according to the story that it presents, along with the community of Christians who have done this for a whole lot of times over the course of a whole lot of years, as we've done this, I read about a God who created the world but was quickly betrayed by the pinnacle of his creation when Adam and Eve sinned against him early after creation, shortly after creation. But instead of God responding to that as an uh, as an unjust, unforgiving control freak we can say from the first pages of genesis god isn't a control freak he gave adam and eve the freedom to do what they wanted to to even go away from god when they chose to he wasn't unforgiving god could have destroyed them like that had he been unforgiving or unjust or a vindictive control freak but god extended grace even from the earliest pages of genesis god initiated redemption from them or, or with them even from the earliest pages of genesis Flip over a few more pages in Genesis and you see God initiating a relationship with this guy by the name of Abram or Abraham. And God said, through you, Abraham, I'm gonna bless all the families, all the nations, all the peoples on earth. So it's tough to point to God as being ethnocentric when God's design from Genesis 12 and even earlier, I would say, is to bless all the peoples of the earth. It's tough to call God unjust and unforgiving and vindictive When he pursues redemption with his broken creation to such an extent that he loved us enough to send his own son to do for us what we can't do for ourselves when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. So as you compare the way Richard Dawkins introduces God to the way the Bible itself actually introduces God, you'll see that there's a pretty big gap between how Dawkins understands the God of the Bible and how the God of the Bible actually presents himself. There's one passage in Exodus 34 that I just want to quickly point us in the direction of, because this is one of those places where however Richard Dawkins says, okay, here's who God is, it's worth looking at how God presents himself. And Exodus, Exodus Excuse me, Exodus 34 is one of those places where God comes out in a special way and says, okay, here's who I am. The stuff that I do, is going to be understood in light of this primary way that I'm understood. So Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, uh, God says, Uh, Again introducing himself to Moses and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming uh, I am the Lord uh, merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So that has to be, I mean, here's God said is, okay, you want to know who I am? Here's who I am. That has to be a, a controlling text, if I can call it that, a primary way that we understand everything else God does in the Old Testament, the New Testament. I think it can fit underneath that way that God introduces himself there in Exodus 34. This doesn't mean that God is always easy to understand. He's God and we're not. He's infinite and we're finite. There's gonna be times when we read the Old Testament or the New Testament, scratch our heads, our ears are smoking a little bit and say, huh, I wonder how that works out. But that doesn't mean God is acting inconsistently with who he's revealed himself to be as as, as a God characterized by loving kindness. This Hebrew word, chesed, is this great Hebrew word that you can't be standing too close because you'll get spit on when you say it. Loving kindness and holiness, those two characteristics God will always act consistently with. So that's where I'd love to just point Richard Dawkins towards that and say, uh, I'm sorry if Christians have misrepresented God in this way you describe here uh, in your quote, Richard, or Dr. Dawkins, probably is how I'd address him. Um, But let me introduce you instead to the God of the Bible, as I understand, and that's the God we need to worship we need to have at the forefront of our minds as we, sing, as we sing songs and live our lives. But that's the God we need to point others towards as well. Okay, our final question that deserves attention is, is this. third question is, what does God's existence mean for us? What does God's existence mean for us? To the new atheists, religion and belief in God has led, apparently, to nothing but extreme fanaticism and regrettable acts. I'll pull up another quote from Richard Dawkins and read that for you. Uh, Richard Dawkins, again, in his book, The God Delusion, page one. So here's how he kind of comes out of the chute. Says that, imagine with John Lennon, a world with no religion. Imagine no suicide bombers, no 9-11, no 7-7, no crusades, no witch hunts, no gunpowder plot, no Indian partition, no Israeli-Palestinian wars, no Serb-Croat-Muslim massacres, No persecution of Jews as Christ killers. No Northern Ireland troubles. No honor killings. I I love this next one. No shiny suited bouffant haired televangelists fleecing gullible people out of their money. So these are all the things that Richard Dawkins points to as as characteristic of religion. Think of religion, Richard Dawkins says, and these are the things that you should think of. Apparently, according to Richard Dawkins, if we get rid of God or religion, uh, the world would be a much better place and we get rid of the vast majority of the world's problems as well. And there's a whole lot I wish I could say in response to this. But for the sake of time, uh, let me be brief. Uh, First of all, we've got to raise our hands and say that some things have been done by the people of God in the name of God that grieve the heart of God. Let me say that again because that in itself will be maybe a little bit of a paradigm shift for some of you this morning. There are things that have been done by the people of God in the name of God that grieve the heart of God. Not everything done by Christians accurately represents what God wants. There are easy things to point to, like the Crusades. I know of no Christian person, scholar or otherwise, who would try to defend the Crusades today and raise their hands and say, yeah, that was right. We look back on, say, say, the church misunderstood what they were doing and misrepresented the name of God. But there are things that I do every week or every month or a whole lot Where I misunderstand scripture and I misrepresent God or there are times when I understand scripture But I still willfully do my own thing to be a jerk sometimes And I misrepresent the name of God So there are things that are done by the people of God in the name of God that grieve the heart of God So don't assign every evil thing done in the name of God to say boy That's what God wanted because that's not the case We need to continually push ourselves back to this book to God's word and said, hey, let's look at this together. Is this really what God would have wanted us to do in that situation? But, but it's important to note, kind of secondly, that Dawkins has been very selective in the list of things that he assigns to religion. The thing that I would ask Dr. Dawkins, um, I, I would want to ask him, what about all the good things that are done by Christians precisely because of the role that God played in their lives? What of the Christians who have been so involved as Christians in societal reform building hospitals, starting soup kitchens, starting the Salvation Army, working for uh, justice in the sex trafficking slate of Southeast Asia, working for justice in, uh, in AIDS relief in Africa and providing clean water and medicine to people who can't have it. What of all the people that, that are involved as Christians in all of these things that are accomplishing the common good of our society? You can't only assign evil acts to religion. That's just historically irresponsible, you know? Um, but we need to say that Christians have been at the forefront of so many good things, not just because they were kind people, but precisely because of the role that God played in their lives. Same story with so many of us individually. So many of you who give up your Saturday mornings to serve at the open door mission. You do so not because you say, boy, I love getting up at six o'clock in the morning or whatever time you have to get up to be there at whatever time you have to be there. Instead you say, you know what? Uh, I want to be transformed by the life of Jesus in me and through me and around me. So that means I'm going to do some stuff that's uncomfortable and convenient. What about the dads who say, you know, it's been a long day at work. I'm just going to go home, put my feet up, paper in front of me, TV on in the background, because that's easy and I just need to veg. What about those dads who say, I'm not going to do that, but instead I'm going to engage my family, pick up after supper, play with my kids, even though it's tough, because I want to be the sort of dad that Jesus would have me to be. There are all sorts of ways at the big macro level, but also at the small micro level, that the life of Jesus is good for our families and our societies. And we need to remind people of that and remind ourselves of that as well. But as much as anything else, uh, the question of what does God's existence mean for us and the way the new atheists respond to that, it reveals that their issue isn't only with the existence of God. Because they don't just talk a lot about why God couldn't exist. But instead, the way that new atheists respond to this question, it shows that, that the new atheists have a lot of issues with the followers of God as well. There's one last quote that we'll pull up again by the smart guy, Alistair McGrath. And uh, again, he's an atheist turned Christian. Here's what he says. He says, history strongly suggests that those who are attracted to atheism are first repelled by theism. Brooksiders and Christians that statement should at the same time haunt us and motivate us to say, may that not be true of the, of the church we, we present and of the individual lives we present. But so history strongly suggests that those who are attracted to atheism are first repelled by theism. What propels people toward atheism is above all a sense of revulsion against the excesses and failures of organized religion. And if this is the case, and I think that it is, then that means that we can't only address or respond to the new atheism at the level of ideas. If the excesses and failures of organized religion, if that's what has turned people away from God, then it's vital that we take a look at our own house and at our own lives. And we respond to the new atheism, not just at the level of idea, but at the level of life as well. This means that the question we're looking at What does God's existence mean for us? It's not some academic question that gives us a fresh ammo clip when we're talking with someone who happens to be an atheist. This is the question that we have to ask ourselves for ourselves. What does God's existence mean for us? If God is real and if God is near, like the Bible presents, what does that mean for me? Here's a couple questions that follow up on that do we really go about our weeks like God is real and near and involved in our lives? Or do we live our lives as practical atheists? If someone's gonna follow me around for a month and follow Richard Dawkins around for a month, what noticeable differences would they see in our lives other than the fact that I'm at a church on Sunday mornings and my guess is Richard Dawkins isn't? Would they see noticeable differences in the way I treat my family, in what I trust, what I value, how I spend my time, how I spend my resources? Are there noticeable differences in my life? Because I claim allegiance to the King of creation, to Jesus, and everything that means for uh, for me and for the, the nuts and bolts of my life. But a second follow-up question is, do we really believe that God's people are to be salt and light in our world? A lot of us would be able to point to Matthew 5 and uh, 1 Peter 2, I believe it is, that kind of talk about how our good works till the soil for the seeds of the gospel. But do we say, okay, yeah, I know it's important to be salt and light, but does that calling come second to our comfort and our convenience? Do we say, I'll do that as long as it's comfortable? I'll do that as long as it's convenient for me? Or do we say, even when it's uncomfortable and even when it's inconvenient, I'm gonna represent Christ to the place that he has called me today uh, in all the ways that that should take shape in sacrificial service. We can't consider the nearness of God for too long and we can't consider our calling to be sacrificial servants of others for too long before us Christians before we're brought face to face with the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's nearness to us, of God's presence in the universe and in our world. And Jesus is the exult, ultimate example of sacrificial service, not only in what he did for us, but also in the example he gave us to follow in his footsteps as his followers. So the way we want to end this service then is by directing our attention again, squarely on Jesus Christ. As you sing the song that Rob and the team will come up and lead us in, pay attention to the lyrics. Uh, Allow them to prompt you to fresh worship of this God who is near in the person of Jesus Christ. But also allow them to prompt you to fresh and renewed service of others, even a sacrifice to yourself as we consider what Jesus sacrificed for us on our behalf.